The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. Spent a good bit of time going through the book of Nehemiah recently, and we've mostly concluded those thoughts. I would like to have some, some follow-up thoughts uh, in connection with Nehemiah chapter 13 from the book of Malachi this morning, the book of Malachi, which is the last book in your Old Testament. So you can turn to Matthew and then go back one book. Uh, the time of Malachi... The prophecy of Malachi is associated with the environment that we find in Nehemiah chapter 13. And to remind you of that environment that we find in Nehemiah chapter 13, we obviously have the amazing revival and the movement of the Lord in blessing the rebuilding of the Jerusalem wall in only 52 days, but then also the revival the confession, the repentance, and the revival that is associated with that. And uh, you may remember their devotion to worship and confession and repentance in the midst of that. Uh, one particular worship services that they worship for, for probably six hours, 15 preachers, uh, and weeping at the end of it, and then they... We're committed to observe the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, for seven days. And then in the aftermath of that, they were still reading in the book of the law one-fourth part of the day and then confessing and worshiping for one-fourth part of the day. So an amazing revival in the movement of the Lord and the movement of the Holy Spirit, and not just the completion of the rebuilding of the wall for them to have physical protection and safety uh, but the spiritual revival, spiritual repentance. And then in the midst of that, they also recommitted. They recommitted to the covenant that it seemed like every generation of Judah did to say, Lord, we're going to be obedient to the provisions of the commandment. And we mentioned for you last time the specific provisions that they committed to for the Lord to hold them accountable for their obedience, for their personal commitment to the provisions of the covenant. <clears throat> but then, unfortunately, God's people are God's people. <laughs> God's people make the same mistakes over and over again. And then, by the time we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 13, it's only 12 years later, okay? Don't miss that. Only 12 years later. I'll tell you, the kingdom of God and health in the kingdom of God and revival in the kingdom of God is so fragile. It's so fragile, and we can't ever take it for granted. Only 12 years later, in the aftermath of this amazing revival, they were back doing the same things that their fathers did. That was the whole reason that those walls were broken down and they were in judgment, okay? And in association with that, I want to highlight for you, again, as a reminder, a few specific points from Nehemiah chapter 13 of provisions of the covenant that they had made only 12 years earlier that now they were 
they were neglecting. They had not separated themselves from the heathen Gentiles of the land later on. It's addressed by marriage, but also just by way of fellowship. Remember the priest, um, one of the leaders of the people, the priest, was allowing Tobiah, who was one of the main enemies of the rebuilding effort, he was allowing him to essentially have a personal storage locker in the temple of God. Even Levi, no one other than the Levites were even allowed in the temple. So even rank-and-file Jews weren't allowed in the temple, but the priest was allowing an Ammonite who wasn't even supposed to go into the congregation of Israel at all. He was allowing him provision to have essentially a personal storage locker in the temple. Okay, And then they were not supporting the Levites. Uh, they weren't worthy of being supported, but uh, that's not the point. God commanded you. Uh, commanded these Old Testament Israelites to support the temple and support the Levites regardless of, of their personal worthiness or even obedience. And then they were not observing the Sabbath. They were transacting business on the Sabbath. And then they were intermarrying with the heathen that led to them, to uh, intermarrying with other Gentile nations that led to them being enticed to submit to idolatry. Okay? <clears throat> Those were the major points that Nehemiah addressed. Now, what you find there in Nehemiah 13 is that Nehemiah has been gone for, well, it's a period of 12 years from the rebuilding of the wall. He's, he's back in um, serving the Persian king. We don't know when he went back. So I don't know if he's been gone for five years or you know, 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. But it's 12 years later, and he comes back, and he's just, he's just mad. He's hot, right? And starts chewing out, chewing people out, throws Tobias stuff out of the temple, locks the gates to where people can't come in on the Sabbath. But what we find there is one man's zeal. But what we don't find, at least in the inspired record, what we don't find is that the people are repenting of the mistakes that they're making. Right now, we see that earlier. The people are. It should have been one of the most joyous times in the nation, in the history of the nation of Israel. But instead, their first response to hearing the preaching of the of the word of God of the law is weeping, and then and then finally the uh, Nehemiah and the leaders had to go tell them, no, no, don't cry today. There's a time for repentance. There's a time for sackcloth and ashes. But today, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? That's how they responded. 12 years earlier. But what we don't find, what we don't find in Nehemiah 13 is the people repenting in sackcloth and ashes. We see Nehemiah being incensed that they have done this, but we don't see a repentance and a revival among the people, okay? And then we arrive at the prophecy of the Lord spoken through Malachi, Okay? One the, the primary thing I want to highlight here in the book of Malachi, and I think that this time, this environment of, um, to use the New Testament term, of lukewarm religion, of lukewarm Christianity, and a self-justification of abject disobedience from the word of God, but in their mind, they did, they could not see that they were doing anything wrong. Okay. This environment 
is very similar, in my opinion, to the general disposition of Christianity that we are living in today. Okay? So I want us to see some of the similarities in the general disposition of religion, in the general disposition of Christianity today, that we find during this generation in the book of Malachi. Again, only 12 years removed from one of the greatest revivals in the history of the nation of Israel. Okay? But one of the biggest problems with this generation's, Malachi's generation's response is that not only did, were they unwilling, I won't say they were unable, they were unwilling to accept the reality of the situation. They had developed such a irreverence of God that they were talking back to the Lord like spoiled little brats and children, okay? And just these questions, just the way that they are responding to the Lord as a loving Heavenly Father, rebuking, gently chastising His people through this prophet for the purpose of bringing them to repentance to have closer fellowship with Him, right? Look at the way that they responded with irreverence, with just simply sarcastic backtalk, okay? But the worst thing is they, they were not able to realize the reality of their disobedience. In their mind, they weren't doing anything wrong. And boy, that's a scary place to be, okay? So here in the book of Malachi, <clears throat> again, associated with the environment in Nehemiah chapter 13, the Lord burdens Malachi to rebuke the people of this generation. We'll begin here. We're going to highlight a few verses just to kind of give you this tone that's all throughout the book. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. A son dishonoreth his father, <clears throat> and a servant, excuse me, a son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts. Again, this is not Malachi. Okay, this is not Malachi being dramatic. The Lord is telling you this. Saith the Lord of hosts, O priest that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised your name? What? We're not doing anything wrong, Lord. You, you say we are. What are we doing wrong? Ye offer polluted blood upon mine altar. I mean, that's a definitive statement. There's no ifs in there. It's a definitive statement. Ye offer polluted blood, yet ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? Verse 8, if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? If you offer the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Offer it now to the governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept that? Obviously, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, right? The answer is clearly no, okay? We'll come back to each of these each of these sections, but let's skip to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, you're gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, 
saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, wherein shall we return? We don't need to repent. What, what do you mean we need to return? We're exactly where we need to be. Wherein shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed God? Where, where have we robbed you? Verse 13, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You see that? That consistent tone that the Lord is telling them straight up, you are in abject disobedience. And not only not acknowledging that they're in disobedience, but having the gall to talk back and say, what's the problem? We're not doing anything wrong. Now, that kind of confused, self-deluded, self-justification, uh, one group of people that you may uh, know a little bit better that had that kind of confusion is the Laodiceans, right? The Laodiceans. In Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Now we, we said that only 12 years after this amazing revival of the rebuilding of the wall, now they're right back to this irreverent, lukewarm state of religion, state of worship. And we find here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this is probably maybe 40 years. Typically in the Bible, a generation is associated with about 40 years. So when it says a generation, you can just kind of have in the back of your mind about 40 years. And within one generation, within one generation of everything that we see in the book of Acts, and Ephesus being one of the primary uh, motherships of the church in the book of Acts, we find that church in Revelation chapter 2, that they're going through the motions. They're going through the motions and doing everything right, but he tells them, or on the surface doing everything right, but he tells them there at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2 that actually you've left your first love. You've left your first love, and you need to repent. So, the, book, the, the, uh, the church at Ephesus, the, one of the leaders of, we have detailed in great detail, great, great specifics in the book of Acts, the establishment of the church at Ephesus. Obviously, we have the epistle to the Ephesians. That's one of the hallmarks and the pinnacle of, uh, of the New Testament. Timothy ministered in Ephesus. The Apostle John ministered in Ephesus. It's one of the central churches of the entire New Testament. And they're still going through, uh, we're going to get this language from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 in a little bit. They have a form of godliness. Okay? A form of godliness, but they're denying the power thereof. Okay? They have a form of godliness, but that form of godliness is not being motivated and driven by a fervent, zealous love for Jesus Christ. Instead, it's about the logistics, to put it in modern day terms, the logistics of being an old Baptist, right? 
It's not a fervency of love for Jesus Christ. It's instead making sure that we give an outward show of a pretense that we think we're doing the right thing. <clears throat> but I tell you, it's, it's so sobering. How fragile, how fragile if we are not diligent and zealous and fervent that even the church at Ephesus had left their first love only 40 years from it. And, and what happened? What happened? Uh, that next generation that came up, they did not, they most likely were not taught many of the things from that first generation that they should have been taught to establish them in the way that that first, that first generation, boy, they, they felt what first love was like, right? But something was lacking when they made their way to the next generation. And then you go through the, uh, the rest of the seven churches in Asia, and you find problems in all of them, right? You find problems in all of them. Then we arrive at the church at Laodicea, <clears throat> the church at Laodicea. Now, notice the way in which they, they, they don't even feel like that they're doing okay. You know, they don't even have the humility to say, well, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. They felt like they were doing exceptional, right? You know, I am, thou sayest, this is Revelation chapter three. He calls them lukewarm. I, I, I know thy works, that thou, I wish you were cold or hot, uh, that thou art lukewarm and I'm ready to spew you out of my mouth. And no, notice their assessment of themselves. <laughs> you know, if, if you gave them a annual survey on the spiritual health of the church, this is what their response to their annual evaluation of the state of the church was. Because thou sayest, which by the way, just the way that they phrase this indicates the problem, right? <laughs> you remember some things we considered a few weeks ago that, that uh, most of the slippery slope of uh, fading away from the Lord starts with pride, abundance of idleness, prosperity, rest. And uh, I, I noticed that Brother Joel calls out, God of refuge, oh, hear our prayer. Uh, God of love, oh, hear our prayer, rather. Uh, and one of the phrases that really stood out to me as we were singing that this morning is, Lord, save us from the prosperous hour. Lord, save us from the prosperous hour and from the tempter's power, right? Because that's when Satan's going to attack you, is when you're in prosperity's hour. So, in their mind, they evaluated their spiritual health by not the labor of love that they've served to the community, not all of these, these spiritual attributes that we should be focused on. What was their assessment? I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. That was their spiritual assessment of the church, right? Now Jesus gives them the real assessment, the Lord's assessment. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. That's the Lord's assessment of their lukewarm state. But in their mind, not only are we not doing anything wrong, we are the pinnacle. We are the example. We are rich and increased with God. And don't the rest of you churches wish you had 
such a large bank account as we have and such a nice building as we have and all these, all these nice things that go along with riches and prosperity. But the Lord says, I'm ready to spew you out of my mouth. Why? Because you are lukewarm. Now, one of the main things I want to emphasize here is the way that they viewed themselves entirely different than the Lord viewed themselves. Viewed them, right? It's exactly what we find in the book of Malachi. Now, big picture here. <clears throat> big picture. Um, the book of Malachi is the last prophecy. Not all the Old Testament is in chronological order, but the book of Malachi is the last prophecy in the Old Testament before the 400 silent years, before John the Baptist started preaching, before Jesus Christ came on the scene, okay? <clears throat> and I believe there are a lot of similarities between the state of spiritual coldness and a form of godliness. You know, the, the, the Jews were not, if you remember there in Malachi 1, it's not that they were saying, Lord, we're not going to offer any sacrifices at the temple anymore, right? They didn't look at the Lord and say, we're not going to offer anything. No, they just offered the Lord the scraps and the leftovers, which was directly contradictory to where all these offerings have to be without blemish, right? So they didn't just neglect. They weren't in, they weren't in idolatry. They weren't in idolatry. Worshiping false gods, they had a form of godliness, but boy, it was irreverent. They denied the power thereof, okay? And I believe there are a lot of similarities toward that environment. And then, you look at that environment, you don't have any indications of repentance among the people. And then the Lord removes any prophetic vision for 400 years. 400 years. And then, look how dark, spiritually dark, the environment was of supposed religion. They were still going through the, the logistics of religion, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, boy, they were all about the logistics of religion, a form of godliness, but it was spiritual darkness when Jesus Christ came, okay? And I believe that kind of environment that was prevalent during the, the period leading up to Jesus' first coming is going to be very similar but escalated the closer and closer and closer we get to the Lord's second coming, okay? And the book of Malachi, if you look at that, at least in my opinion, the beginning of the third chapter talks about John the Baptist. I'm going to send a messenger, and then that messenger that messenger is going to come, and then the Lord is going to appear suddenly in his temple. That's talking about the first coming of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4 is talking about the second coming of the Lord, okay? And I don't necessarily think here, you know, many people have speculated that um, the letters to the seven churches of Asia are the different ages of the church. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that you can line that out, that this, this period is Ephesus, this, this date to this date is Ephesus, and this date to this date is Smyrna, etc. But... I think, I think that it's very true that the closer and closer we get to the second coming of the Lord, Christianity is going to look a lot like 
the Laodicean lukewarm culture, right? So the closer and closer we get, and I don't know how close we are. I don't have any. Uh, I know we're the closest. I can say this definitively. We are the closest we've ever been, right? We are the closest. We've, we're, in the, we're in the last of the last days so far in the history of the world, right? And we've been in the last days ever since the first century. But I don't know how close we are to the Lord's second coming, obviously. But there is a consistent teaching in the New Testament that as we get closer and closer and closer to the Lord's second coming, there will be a falling away. There will be spiritual coldness. In the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, <clears throat> Jesus Christ is uh, giving indicators that would certainly be true of the destruction of Jerusalem, but I believe those things will be very evident and magnified and, and exponentially magnified uh, the closer we get to the Lord's second coming. And one of those attributes is that the love of many will wax cold. Why? Because iniquity abounds. Iniquity abounds. The love of many is going to wax cold. <clears throat> and then also, there's two generations, there's two time periods that the period before the Lord's second coming is compared with. And those are the days of Noah and then the city of Sodom. Okay? Now, what happened in the day of Noah, the days of Noah? The, the thoughts and the intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. Okay? And only one person is highlighted. Only, only Noah is highlighted as finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, God has a people out of every nation, kindred, people, and time. I believe it's very improbable. Obviously, I have no numbers to back this up. But I believe it's very improbable that Noah and his family, those eight people that were saved on the ark, were the only elect people on the face of the earth during that time period. I, would be, I think it would be very foolish to think <laughs> out of the millions of people that were on the face of the earth that there were only eight elect people. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means that those children of God, during that age, they assimilated to the worldly, wicked culture around them. They assimilated. And you know what? I guarantee you, they probably didn't see anything wrong with it. They, did, they weren't able to see their disobedience. Same, same way with the city of Sodom. I mean, uh, we, we don't know anything about the size of that city, but it sure seems to be prominent. It sure seems to be prosperous. I think it's, it's very safe to assume there was probably at least 500,000 people in that city. <clears throat> we'll just throw that out there. 500,000 people in that city. Do you think that there, there was only one elect person in that whole city of 500,000 people? I believe that's very doubtful. Very doubtful. And guess what? That one elect person that the Lord had to drag out by the, by the back of his neck, he didn't want to go. <laughs> Lot, was the only reason he did was not because of Lot. It was because of Abraham. That's the only reason that Lot even got out of there. Lot didn't want to leave. Why? Because he was assimilated and boy, it, it had turned out really well for him, right? He'd been really prosperous. He, he, was a, he was a leader in the city. He sat in the gate, okay? So I think both in Noah's day and in, in Sodom, 
there were children of God, children of God, that just assimilated to the iniquity and the wickedness around them. And I doubt, now in, in, internally, well, we know that Lot, in the same way for every child of God, if they choose to live in disobedience to God's word, Lot, in his conscience, his righteous soul was vexed daily. Right? His righteous soul was vexed daily. But apparently it didn't vex him enough for him to repent. Why? This is a lot bigger topic. We don't want to go down that rabbit trail. But it's clear that his conscience had got seared with a hot iron. It's clear that he got continually convicted and he learned to ignore that conviction. He learned to ignore that conviction. Over time, his conscience got seared with a hot iron. Okay? And he was not able to see the state of disobedience and sin he was in. So, this environment that we find in the book of Malachi, that we find in uh, that we find in the Laodicean church, I think these attributes are going to become more and more and more relevant to us as we continue to see. I don't know where we're at in the graph. But it's just really hard for me to see anything other than the graph, at least as a whole. We're not talking about, I want to make sure we don't leave the message today with gloom and doom and despair. We can have revival in our individual lives and in our individual churches. And if we are faithful to do that, the Lord will honor that. Okay? But, but we have to understand that there's a good chance, at least in my opinion, that we're on the downward overall Christianity graph of a falling away and a decline, okay? And if that's the case, this kind of Christian environment is the norm, the norm, and maybe even getting worse, okay? <clears throat> Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And here, the Apostle Paul is, is specifically talking about characteristics of the last days. Now, there's a sense in which this is highlighted in multiple places in the New Testament that we're in the last days. Now, we're, we're not in the last of the last of the last days, right? But we are in the last dispensation, the last period. There's no other major benchmark between the first coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord, okay? We're in the last days in that sense. But these things will continue to escalate and they will continue to increase and become more prominent and become more, uh, more unapologetic and in your face and bold. And just in the small sample size of America in the last 50 years, we see that graph, don't we? We see it, okay? And not to discourage you, we just need to preach the Bible. That graph will continue to escalate. Evil men and seducers not going to get better and better. The evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. Okay? What are the characteristics of, of the last days, especially the last of the last days? Okay? Perilous times will come. Dangerous times. I mean, you know, some people want to say that, oh, you know, we're, we're right. And I don't know. I hope the Lord, in my understanding of Scripture, there are some specific benchmarks that we have to see before the Lord returns a second time. But boy, I would love nothing better than for me to be dead wrong <laughs> and the Lord to come back. Because we need to live every single day 
as if he could come back today, right? So when I say there appears to be benchmarks that need to be met, that at least in my assessment, I don't, I don't fully see them yet, that does not mean that we are not every day, hopefully, praying and expecting and hoping that my understanding of Scripture is dead wrong, <laughs> that he comes back today, right? So I don't want this message to, I don't want you to take this like Thessalonians <laughs> that misunderstood the teaching of the Lord's second coming for them to be lazy and not be vigilant. Um, we need to live every day as if Jesus Christ is going to come back at noon, right? But in the last days, the last of the last days, perilous times will come. And we, can, we don't have time to highlight all this stuff. And again, I think all this stuff is just going to continue. I mean, we see people that are lovers of their own selves, covetous. You've seen that in, in every generation. But it's going to continue to escalate closer and closer and closer we get to the second coming of the Lord. And some people say, some people say this is the worst it's ever been. Well, maybe it's the worst you've ever seen it. But if you think it's the worst it's ever been for the church, you've not read a history book. You've not read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And I believe it's very presumptuous and very prideful for us because we have a minimum, we, have, we still have the greatest level of religious protection under the law. And we may have, we may have lost a minimal amount of it in the last 50 years, but we still have the most that any nation that any church has ever had in the history of the world, okay? So people throw up their hands and they're like, the, this, the, the, this is the worst the world has ever been. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Now, what's scary, what's scary is to read the book of Daniel, beginning chapter 12, where it says, there will be a time of trouble that is worse than this world has ever seen. Now, at that time, Michael the archangel is going to stand up for the people of God, and that's when Jesus Christ is going to come back. But that's what it says. It says that it's going to be a time of trouble that is worse than anything that we've ever seen. And just think in your mind about how horrible things have been in the past, and Scripture affirms it's going to be worse than it's ever been. So for that reason... It sure seems to me we're not at the tail end, okay? Now, dear Lord, please prove me wrong and come back right now, right? But we need to understand that things are going to get more difficult, especially since American Christians, we've been so coddled with First Amendment protections, we don't know what it's like to really suffer for the kingdom, okay? So, one of the attributes... Men should be lovers of their own selves. <laughs> there have been prideful men everywhere in the history of the world, right? Um, unthankful, without natural affection. You know, just be, it's like just because uh, in America we're seeing this open acceptance of homosexual sodomite marriage that for some reason we're acting like that this is a new thing. It's not. It's not. We've just been isolated from it for a little bit. Okay? It's not new. This is the phrase that I want. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Actually, let's read verse 4 because I think that leads right into it. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures 
more than lovers of God. And I think that leads right into verse five, having a form of godliness, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. If you see somebody acting in that way, they don't need to be in your close circle of fellowship, okay? But lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and you let that grow and grow and grow and grow, next thing you know, you just got a bunch of lots running around, right? <laughs> Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, okay? Um, we're going to... Hopefully get back to the book of Malachi. Before we do that, I want to go to, to 1 Samuel 15 and have one more uh, cautionary tale of Saul, King Saul. And boy, if there's anybody, who, who a child of God, who messed up his life any more than Lot, Saul is right there giving him a run for his money, okay? And what happens here is that Samuel, the Lord speaking through Samuel. So the Lord tells Saul. Now Samuel is the one who tells it, but it's the Lord that tells Saul that because of these Amalekites and what they did in the past, you go and you smite all the Amalekites. You kill all the people. You kill the king. You kill all the animals. And then they're supposed to execute that order from the Lord. And then the Lord knows that Saul was not obedient in that regard. And the Lord comes to Samuel before he sees Saul. This is 1 Samuel 15, <clears throat> verse 11. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Saul, and he cried all night. But Saul rose up in the morning, and he went up to go see him. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, <laughs> Saul's initiating the conversation, right? Saul is so deluded in his self-assessment that not only does he not realize he's done anything wrong, he's going to brag to Samuel that I've been so obedient. He says, this is Saul's assessment of his disobedience, okay? He, Saul initiates the conversation to brag to Samuel, and he says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Lord, I've done, I've done exactly what you told me to do. And then Samuel says, Well, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen? If, if you've been obedient, then why do I hear Amalekite livestock? Right? They should all be dead. And then Saul says, you know, he comes up with all these excuses. And, you know, as I read this, you know, did the people really do this? You know, I think he's just deflecting blame and trying to blame the people. Because if you see the way that Saul kind of ruled in his, in his king, I don't think anyone was just going to unilaterally decide we're going to not kill all these things um, for offerings and sacrifices without giving the approval of Saul. Okay, so as we typically do, he's deflecting blame to someone else that actually, oh, no, 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 I was obedient, but they are the ones that kept the animals. The people did, okay? But then Saul says, they brought them, it's verse 15, 
They brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the the, the people did it. <laughs> you know they did not do that without the approval and probably the the command of Saul, right? This was Saul's decision, but he's trying to blame somebody else for it, okay? And then, again, what's the slippery slope? <laughs> what's always the slippery slope that leads to disobedience, irreverence? And the, more, the higher we view ourselves, well, this is much more to be said about this than we can. The, the higher we view ourselves and the way that, that pride has a tendency to grow, there will always be a corresponding decrease in our fear of the Lord and our reverence of the Lord. The higher we view ourselves, inevitably, the lower we're going to view the Lord. It's just the way it works. Okay? But notice this. What was the beginning of Saul's decline? What's the beginning of Saul's slippery slope of disobedience? Verse 17, Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, that's when the Lord raised you up. When you were, when you were humble, the Lord raised you up. Now, you've been filled up with pride and jealousy for David. And you have exhibited, you know, what does the Lord hate? Book of Proverbs. What does the Lord hate? A proud heart. Proud look and a proud heart. And what, what happened in Saul's heart? He started viewing himself a lot more highly than he ought to. View. He got a little bit prideful. And then what did the Lord do? What, and don't, don't miss the language. Saul, when he was little in his own sight, he was lifted up with pride in his heart. He deposed him. God deposed him as king. And who did the Lord seek out? A man after God's own heart, right? He sought out someone that had the humility of heart that Saul started out with, right? Mm -hmm. Saul started out with the humility of heart. But now all of a sudden he's got pride in his heart. You see? And, boy, where does that pride go? Inevitably, that pride is going to start saying, I think that I've got a minorly edited better way than what the Lord said to do. Mm -hmm. Right? That's where pride's going to go. And then, that pride is then going to tell you, when I'm in abject disobedience, because I did the opposite of what God told me to do, you're going to look at yourself and say, I haven't done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. You see? Boy, pride... Boy, all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by the way, I think you can tie in. Where does lust come from? That, in my mind, that comes directly from pride. Pride says, when, when you have that urge to do something that's disobedient to the Lord, pride says you ought to do that. Humility would lead you to repentance, okay? So you can make the case that, that all lust comes from pride. Okay, and that's why the Lord hates it, you see? So, when you were little in your own sight, wast thou not made the head of all of God's people? And the Lord told you, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them. Uh, wherefore, then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, and didst fly up on the spoil and this evil in the side. I mean, this is a pretty harsh rebuke, right? And what's Saul's response to this harsh rebuke? Saul says, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. <laughs> you see that? He has an inability to assess, and there is no 
revival without repentance, and there is no repentance without confession. And by the way, confession is not blaming it on somebody else. (laughs) It's taking full responsibility that I made this decision. It was my responsibility. I messed up. Lord, please forgive me. Number one, he says, I haven't done anything wrong. And oh, but if I did do something wrong, it was the people that did it, right? (laughs) I haven't done anything. But even when he was brought with, it is is harsh, but it's still a loving rebuke, right? The Lord is still trying to get him to repent. It's still a loving rebuke. And he looks (laughs) Samuel right in the eye and says, I have obeyed. I haven't done anything wrong. Okay, I have obeyed. And then verse 21, he blames the people. But the people took of the spoil. They did it, not me. I was obedient. But these, you know, these uh, rebellious people, right? It's their fault. And then notice this point. What Samuel says, what's his rebuke to to Saul? Hath the Lord as great delights in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Okay? And then, verse 23 is where it gets really tough, right? (laughs) You know, I know none of you are idolaters. I know none of you are going out and doing all these abjectly horrible things that are characteristic of the world, right? But this is where it really gets home, right? For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as idolatry and iniquity. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now, what he's saying there is essentially, Saul, because of your pride, you think you thought you knew better than the Lord. You thought you knew better than the Lord. And where does that come from? Boy, it comes from pride, doesn't it? And boy, that is, pride is Satan's wheelhouse. That's where his original rebellion came from, right? He was lifted up in pride. He was the anointed cherub. He was lifted up in pride. And that's what led to him rebelling. Pride is Satan's wheelhouse. Okay? And what the, what the Lord is saying through Samuel here is listen, at the end of the day, it's not all about sacrifices. Now, there's a time for sacrifices when the Lord tells you it's time for sacrifice, right? <laughs> but today is not the day for sacrifice. Today is the day of judgment for all the Amalekites. Today is the day of exacting the vengeance of the Lord because of their disobedience. Today is not the day of sacrifice. Today, obedience is judgment. And he said, listen, why would you think that the Lord would be, even if you did, even if you, even if you had a noble intention of sacrificing or, 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 uh, or saving the best of the heathen flocks, did the Lord ever add, put it another way, did the Lord ever tell Israel, you go get the best of the Gentiles' livestock? <laughs> no, right? No, you get the best of your livestock. I don't want the heathen's livestock. 
I don't care if they're better than your lifestyle. I want your lifestyle, and they had to be without blemish, okay? So I don't care if that bull looks twice as, as big as your bull, okay? It, that doesn't matter. What matters is whatever the Lord tells you to do, you do it. And you don't look at that and say, you know what? Well, this is so sobering. 95% of obedience is still 5% of disobedience, right? He did most of what the Lord told him to do, but he had his own little side edits, and you don't know what that was called? Disobedience. <laughs> you know what obedience is? 100% obedience. Mm -hmm. Not 99, not 95. Obedience is 100% obedience, not the Lord knows best in this 95%, and these, books, these bulls look really good, and I, the Lord's going to be so proud of me. I know he told me to kill all these all this livestock, but look how healthy this livestock is. It looks way better than our Israelite livestock, right? He's going to be so proud of me that I'm offering this much nicer bull than even what I have to offer. Well, that's not your prerogative to make that edit, right? No. What do you do? You just obey. You do what the Lord tells you to do. Okay, this is put in a different way in the book of Micah. Micah. Um, let see if I can find that quickly. Micah chapter 6. And we all know verse 8 really well, right? He has showed thee, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of thee? What does the Lord require of thee? Do justly. Love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. Well, what's the context of that? Where'd that come from? Verse 6, Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He said, look, it's not about the quantity of livestock that you offer. It's not even about the, the quantity of sacrifices that you offer. What's it about? It's really about obedience to the Lord in your heart, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And not just verbal speech, out of the abundance of the heart come all of our external actions. And you can go through the, the external pretense, the external form of making a sacrifice, but your heart is not right before the Lord. You see? And that's, we'll have to circle back to this at a later time. Um, in the book of Malachi, they were, they were still giving sacrifices, right? They were still giving sacrifices, but instead they felt like that the Lord would be okay with, I, my prize bull, I'm going to keep the prize bull for me and my family. And this guy who's really sick, who's probably, he's got cancer and he, this, this animal that's probably about to die. When he reaches that point, that's the one I'm going to designate to give to the Lord for sacrifices. Okay. Do you think the Lord's going to be happy with that? How did he put it? Do you think the governor's going to be happy with that? You take that, you know, you take this ugly little animal that it's very evident is malnourished and half dead, 
probably got cancer, it's going to die in a week whether you kill it or not. <laughs> and you go offer that to the most, uh, to the noble dignitary in your town. And, and do you think that they're going to be thankful that you made this tremendous sacrifice? By the way, a sacrifice requires a what? A sacrifice, right? You, you, got, you got to be willing to give up something, right? I mean, is it a sacrifice to give your, uh, your old animal that's going to be dead in a week to the Lord? No. What's a real sacrifice is you looking at that bull that I can, this, this bull, if I used him, I could get 10 years of work out of this guy. That's the one that you offer to the Lord because it's a sacrifice. You're giving something up, right? And the more you give up, the more the Lord is honored. By the way, I don't want to leave you with a very negative tone uh, on this. Well, we One of the things we want to emphasize in the book of Malachi. We won't turn over there and read that. But in the midst of this environment, in the midst of this environment, especially as we continue on the decline of, of uh, the general disposition of coldness and lukewarmness of the general climate of Christianity, it becomes more and more and more vital for those that fear the Lord to fellowship together. That's at the conclusion of Malachi chapter 3. And that's the, that's the promise that he gives to this, the church in Laodicea. If any man opens the door of fellowship to me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Okay? There is no reason we can't have upper room, abundant fellowship with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, even in the climate of general darkness uh, in the climate of general lukewarmness, there's no reason we can't be red hot in the kingdom of God. But there are, there are priorities that really become aligned the more and more and more we see this decline in the culture around us. And one of the most important things is fellowship with the people of God. And the Lord takes note of that. It says that he, when, the, when those that feared his name met together, he took a book of remembrance and he wrote that down specifically when those that feared his name fellowship together in the midst of that environment. Okay. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.